This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is novelist, short story writer, essayist, and nonfiction writer Elizabeth Gilbert. She is well known for her best-selling memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. Her short story collection, Pilgrims, was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award, and her work, The Last American Man, was a finalist for the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her latest novel, The Signature of All Things, is a sprawling tale of 19th century botanical exploration that looks at the topics of science and religion and the formation of new academic ideas. We began the interview talking about what sort of person Elizabeth is toward herself in terms of expectations and letting go. Wow, that is a really good and therapeutic question. Um, I, I think I'm harder on myself than I need to be, though. I su- suspect that most of us are, um, you know, at some level. It's weird. I almost have two completely different identities. Um, and one of my identities is the person who I am as a writer, which is such a huge part of my sense of myself. And the other identity is the person who I am kind of engaging in the world with people, um, whether those be uh, you know, strangers or intimate people in my own life. And, and I feel like the person who I am as a writer, I'm always hoping I can become more like that person in the rest of my life. <laughs> um, I have such an untormented relationship with myself when it comes to my work. I am really confident and, and relaxed and kind of zen about it. Um, I'm not a worrier when it comes to my work. I don't panic. Um, I take the long view. I'm willing to take risks. I'm willing to fail. Um, I'm willing to have people criticize me. Um, there's some weird, intact sense of myself that, that hovers around writing. And I know that's odd because that isn't usually the relationship that I think um, we associate with writers and their work. But it is like the most solid place in, on earth for me. Um, and and then in my interpersonal relationships, I'm sort of like nervous and uncertain and um, super sensitive and overly emotional and often confused. And I just think, how can these two people be the same person? Um, and I wish that my writer self would teach my uh, my personal self a little bit more about, generally speaking, how to be in the world. But of course, my writer self is in complete command of everything that she does. And my interpersonal self is interacting with other people who have agency and do strange things. Um, so I think that is part of it, that it's, it's sort of easier to, to be in control of myself and my work because it belongs entirely to me. So what was that experience like for you when you're, you're saying you have this sort of Zen attitude towards writing, but your life is definitely sort of messier and more ridden with anxiety to put yourself on the page in Eat, Pray, Love so openly um, revealing maybe some of these anxieties and hangups and searches that you were on, doing it through this medium where you feel at peace? You know, I feel like it was the safest place in the world to do it um, because of that trust that I intrinsically have for writing and the writing process. It didn't feel dangerous to me in the least to do that. Um, it felt like it was a really good idea. You know, um, Why don't you take the thing that brings you the most sense of calm and security and use it to work out the stuff that's making you feel the most agitated and insecure? Um, and it just felt like a really good plan. And, and it has never, I've never regretted what I put out there in that book. I also don't feel like 
anything that I put in there is particularly shameful. You know, I think a lot of it is really kind of common human stuff. It's certainly common to a lot of women um, of, of this generation um, at, at this moment in history. And I thought that it might be useful for them to, to sort of um, have that as a template for <laughs> here's how one person handled it. Um, so it, it, it's weird. And, and I've, people have asked me, like, if you knew that 10 million people were going to read that, would you have been as open? And I think I would have been. Um, I mean, I would have been shocked to hear that 10 million people were going to read anything that I wrote. But I don't think I would have held myself back. Um, I also think that what happened is that I wrote Eat, Pray, Love right after I had written a book called The Last American Man about this woodsman named Eustace Conway. And I'd spent three years researching that book and living a lot of the time with him in his world and studying him and following him and trying to comprehend him. And it was really interesting to me that he was so open and revealing and trusting of me. You know, um, he didn't know. I mean, the deal from the beginning was that I was going to write whatever I wanted to write on him. And he gave me such access. And I almost thought it would be rude um, as a journalist and as a nonfiction writer to ask people to be so open and exposing to me. And then when it comes time for me to write about myself, to hold back, um, I, I almost took a lesson from, from those people over the years who had trusted me with their stories that if you're going to do this, you have to go all the way. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is novelist, short story, and nonfiction writer, journalist, and memoirist Elizabeth Gilbert. Her memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, was an international bestseller. Her latest novel is called The Signature of All Things. I'm curious about the trajectory of your career. You started out as a journalist and then wrote short stories and a novel and some nonfiction and then years of memoir. And now this novel, The Signature of All Things, which you have said is your best work that you've done. And I'm just wondering if this was a path you could have foreseen and what you think about the journey of your writing life. It was a path that I chose when I was really young, and I chose it almost for religious reasons. It's so strange. It's a really devotional path for me. Um, it's the thing that's given me meaning in my life and um, and has been the sort of thread that has organized my thinking and my living. And so everything, I feel like everything that I've done, although I wouldn't have been able to know at the age of 16 that I would write these exact books, um, I've continued the same viewpoint toward it, which is that this is an act of love. This is a path of love. This is something that's meant to be done with gratitude and reverence and humility. And your job is to follow the scavenger hunt of inspiration in whatever direction it leads you and believe in it and trust that if inspiration comes to you, it's because it wants you, you know, it wants you to do this book. It wants you to do this story. It wants you to tell this and to, to work with it and collaborate with it and to just keep taking the next step into the darkness, sort of not knowing what, you know, not knowing what it's going to lead to, if anything. And that's never changed. You know, so much has changed about what I've written, you know, going from short stories to magazine work to a novel and then 13 years of nonfiction and then back to fiction. In some ways it looks really disjointed, but to me it looks really orderly because it's, it's exactly, in each case, I can trace exactly the moment of inspiration and exactly the moment of faith um, when I decided to to indeed commit to that project. You mentioned the concept of a scavenger hunt that led you from one work to another. So how do you know when an, an idea comes to you, if it's kind of a passing idea or that it grips you so much you're going to spend years on it, maybe? 
Yeah, it's tricky. I almost feel like the only metaphor that makes sense for what that feels like is, is if you were a water diviner um, and you walk around with a stick in your hand um, over the earth and when you walk over water, it sort of jumps. <laughs> the stick jumps and it's like, oh, there's, there's fresh water running down there. Um, I feel like I'm constantly kind of divining the world, um, just walking around with this sensitivity to trying to figure out, you know, is there a story here? Is there something that needs to be told? Um, is this is this the inspiration? Is this the inspiration? And then you get these almost physical signals, I think, you know, um, shivers at the back of your neck, you know, goosebumps on your arms, your head literally twitches and your ears literally perk up, you know, it feels like atavistic almost. Um, some sort of a signal is coming that, that, you know, that this is really interesting. And then I think it's your duty to not disregard it. You know, um, to to not ignore it and to not brush it off, but to follow it and see if there is indeed something there. And sometimes there isn't. You know, I mean, for you know, I've 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 written six books, but I've had a lot more than six ideas. You know, I've had I've had hundreds of ideas, and you follow them for a little while, and then you go, oh, you know what? I don't think actually, I don't think that actually was for me. And sometimes I'll talk to the idea and I'll say, yeah, I'm really honored <laughs> that you came to me with this, but I think you're supposed to be Barbara King's father's next book. <laughs> you know, um, I think you got the wrong door, like you knocked on the wrong door and you sort of send it on its way, but you have to like let it in for a while and talk to it, you know, and kind of find out whether you're, you know, you're meant to be together. And then there's a moment of full commitment. And from there, you just can't second guess it. Like once, once you decide to kind of sign that piece of paper and say, um, you know, you and I are going to do this together, me and the idea, um, you have to ignore all the voices that tell you that you picked the wrong one and just persevere. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is novelist, short story, and nonfiction writer, journalist, and memoirist Elizabeth Gilbert. Her memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, was an international bestseller. Her latest novel is called The Signature of All Things. You were talking earlier about writing as kind of this spiritual act and sort of a religion for you. And I'm curious about your your thoughts, although I'm sure there are many, about religion, because that was a main theme of your novel, The Signature of All Things. There was religion and science, and they right. were very prevalent throughout the book, and the characters were grappling with them on different levels. And I'm just wondering what interested you enough about these things to bring them out through these characters? One of the things that I was really, really interested in was that schism that happened in the middle of the 19th century between divinity and reason. And it's such an important moment in Western, in Western thought and Western life, because prior to that moment in history, to the middle of the 19th century, there simply was no contradiction at all in, in calling yourself a man of God and a man of science. Um, in fact, all the great men of science were men of God. Um, it was the best naturalists of, of the 18th and 19th century tended to be ministers, um, certainly in the English countryside, but, but also in France and um, a little bit in the United States, because they were the ones who had um, both the education and the leisure time to go out in the world and explore it, but also because, I mean, it seems impossible now to see this based on what the world has come to, but science used to be the place where you found evidence of God. Right, like if you were looking for the creator, you studied creation. <laughs> you studied like what the creator made in order to marvel at the majesty of of the divine, um, and and that was something that everybody was completely comfortable with. And then 
the evidence just started to contradict each other, you know. Um, and and long before Darwin, there was already, you know, there were already people who were having to choose sides between their rational self and their divine self. And it was a really painful moment for a lot of people because they had to choose between the two things that were the most important to them in the world and two things that no one in history had ever considered would ever need to be separated, you know. Um, and it was kind of agonizing for people. And when you read their journals and letters and, and, and notes of scientific meetings, you can see that you can see what's coming. It's like a divorce is brewing. You can see that this marriage between divinity and, and reason is no longer working, um, and and indeed still doesn't work. It's been a really ugly divorce, as we as we know very well. And they're still battling over custody of who gets the kids. Um, and and I really wanted to write about that moment where that started to fall apart because it felt like such a soulful and painful emotional moment in, in people's lives. How did you get from thinking about these high concepts to the characters themselves? Alma, the main character, is the voice of science. She's a botanist and studies mosses and theories of evolution. And the man she falls in love with, Ambrose, is an artist and deeply religious. I have read a little bit that you, you know, research and you take notes on all these note cards of things. I mean, do you write it? Do you sort of think about it in pieces and then add it up? You know, I did, I was a little intimidated. I mean, I was very intimidated by what I was taking on with this book because it felt like it reached so far beyond anything that I had attempted before. Um, and to write a historical novel and not make it sound kind of twee and candlesticky was really important to me. Um, and it's, so all I could do was prepare as rigorously as I could. So it was three years that I spent immersing myself in that world, in that universe. And the characters came to me through the reading of these firsthand materials. Um, so it wasn't like I said, oh, I, I, need, I have this character, Ambrose Pike, and he's going to be a utopian spiritualist, kind of in the level of the transcendentalists of New England, um, and he's going to be a total dreamer, and I need to go find out about him. It was more that I was finding out about that movement, and then as I read and read and read about that movement, this figure began to appear in my mind of somebody who could be part of that. And it's almost the same with Alma. I didn't say, I have this 19th century female botanist that I want to write about, and now I have to go find out stuff about her. It's that I just kept reading about 19th century female botanists, and this figure started to kind of walk out of the shadows toward me. Um, so for me, it comes out of the real research, the imaginary figures. Another thing we should probably mention that came into the divinity and the science is also art. So I, I wondered if you wanted to say anything about that, about how art fit into those things. Well, I think it's all it all goes in part of the dysfunctional family that we know <laughs> in contemporary Western thought. I mean, I think, you know, I think that the, like three of the most important, if not the most important, strains of humanity our divinity, reason, and creativity. Um, so the arts, science, and and God, basically, right, and and religion. Um, these and and as I say, you know, there there really wasn't a, a division between all those things before the middle of the nineteenth century, before the industrialized era, before the scientific world sort of took over and and set things straight. Um, and it's almost like that braid of those three strands. It, it, it became unwound, you know, um, and and now those three things exist in completely different spheres, which means that we live in a world now full of scientists who have no divinity and the faithful who have no reason 
and artists who have neither. You know, um, like that's the sort of sad part. I feel like artists are the kids who got really left out in the cold in this divorce because they lost both. Um, and and they're sort of wandering around super confused and oftentimes really angry um, and in a lot of pain because they've lost those, their sort of moral compass in a way. Um, and, and so the book is about that as well. It's not an accident that Ambrose Pike is not just a, doesn't just have a scientific mind, he has also as an artist um, and almost a pure scientist. And they can't seem to get together on the subject of religion. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is novelist, short story, and nonfiction writer, journalist, and memoirist Elizabeth Gilbert. Her memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, was an international bestseller. Her latest novel is called The Signature of All Things. Can you read something from an author that influenced your writing? Yeah, um, I, I would love to. Um, the, the person who influenced me the most recently is Hilary Mantel, who um, just won her second Booker Prize um, in a row. Amazing, um, and uh, uh, of course the first one was for Wolf Hall, which is um, the first in her trilogy about Thomas Cromwell and and Henry VIII. And I I often say that there would not be the signature of all things without Wolf Hall. Um, I had started doing research on the book before I read it. I started doing research on my book, I should say, before I read Wolf Hall. But the biggest lingering question in my mind was, how do I write a period novel that doesn't sound sort of precious and affected and annoying? Um, and she did that so magnificently with, with Wolf Hall. And I, it took me two weeks of it to realize that what she had done was that she'd written a contemporary novel that just happens to be set in the 16th century. <laughs> um, you know, so she wasn't purporting to be writing an, a novel that was from um, that actual time, because that would have been probably really annoying. <laughs> um, so she just was, uh, was writing from, from, the, from the now, uh, but about the past. And, um, and that freed me up to be able to write my book. Um, so the section that, that I'm going to read here is from Wolf Hall. So the, our, our lead character in this novel is Thomas Cromwell, who is um, one of history's great villains, but she kind of redeems him in the telling of this story. And the scene that I love is the first time that he meets Henry VIII. And it's several hundred pages into the book, um, which is also a really great trick that the main character of the book is not the monarch who we all know, but the um, sort of assistant to the monarch. And um, and this is the first moment when, when Thomas meets him and they you you realize it establishes so much about Thomas Cromwell's character because he's like a street kid who's worked his way up in the ranks and is now facing the King of England. And it's one of these moments where he realizes that he has to either... Um, assert himself as a powerful person or he'll be bowled over by this king forever. Um, so, uh, so Henry says to, um, Henry says to Thomas, we usually say, Henry looks straight at him. We usually say we gentlemen that the chase, the hunt prepares us for war, which brings us to a sticky point, Master Cromwell. It does indeed, Cromwell says cheerful. You said in parliament some six years ago that I could not afford a war. It was seven years ago, Cromwell thinks, 1523. And how long has this audience lasted? Seven minutes. Seven minutes, and he is sure already. There's no point backing off. Do that, and Henry will chase you down. Advance, and he just might falter. Cromwell says, no ruler in the history of the world has ever been able to afford a war. They are not affordable things. No prince ever says, this is my budget, so this is the kind of war I can have. You enter into one, and it uses up all the money that you've got, and then it breaks you, and it bankrupts you. And then Henry says, 
when I went to France in the year 1513, I captured the town of Stiran, which in your speech you called a dog hole, Your Majesty. A dog hole, the king repeats. How could you say so? Thomas Cromwell shrugs. I've been there. And it's just such this great moment of these two super macho guys kind of challenging each other. And it's the moment that you realize that Thomas is in more command of himself than Henry is. And there's also just something about the way that conversation unfolds that doesn't sound like fake 16th century speech. It sounds sort of like contemporary speech. Um, they're talking about budgets and wars and, um, and, and it all sounds very accessible, but um, but at the same time, you completely believe it's the sort of conversation that those two sorts of men could have had. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? It could be something that you found hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or something you succeeded at. Yeah, I'll read to you something from The Signature of All Things. Um, you know, this is an example of what stories can grow into over time. Um, uh, I had read in my research, um, I had found in a book about astronomy, a very old uh, 19th century book about astronomy, I had read um, somebody referring to a story that Keats, um, that Keats had told about when he was a child and he saw, um, sorry, early 20th century astronomy, I should say, um, but he, he was um, at a grand estate and he saw the master of the estate invite everybody outside and then he arranged all the guests in 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 shape of the planets, and they had a waltz where they sort of created the celestial heavens on the lawn of this great estate. And I spent months trying to find the original source for that, um, and I could never find another reference to it. And so I had to, because I couldn't get rid of that idea, and because I couldn't find a firsthand account of that actual event, I had to invent it myself, um, because I really wanted something like that to be in the novel. So um, this is something that happens when, um, when Alma is... Uh, my, my main character is eight years old. Her father has a party and invites an Italian astronomer to come to the party and put everybody in in um, in the planets to teach the ladies uh, the lives of, of the planets and their relationship to each other. So I'll just read you these, uh, this page. The ladies were clamoring to join the amusement, and so Pontecilia arranged them around the men to serve as moons, with each moon in her own narrow orbit. The orchestra struck up again, and this landscape of heavenly bodies took on the appearance of the most strange and beautiful waltz the good people of Philadelphia had ever seen. Henry, the Sun King, stood beaming at the center of it all, his hair the color of flame, while men, large and small, revolved around him, and women circled around the men. Clusters of unmarried girls sparkled in the outermost corners of the universe, distant as unknown galaxies. Alma wanted to be in it. She had never before seen anything so thrilling. She had never before been awake this late, except during nightmares, but somehow had been forgotten in the merriment. She was the only child in attendance as she had been for all her life, the only child in attendance. She ran over to the garden wall and cried up to the dangerously unstable Maestro Pontefili, Put me in it, sir! The Italian peered down at her from his perch, troubling himself to try to focus his eyes. Who was this child? He might have dismissed her entirely, but then Henry bellowed from the center of the solar system, Give the girl a place! Pontecilli shrugged. You are a comet, he called down to Alma, while still making a pretense of conducting the universe with one waving arm. What does a comet do, sir? You fly about in all directions, the Italian commanded. And so she did. She propelled herself into the midst of the planets, ducking and swiveling through everyone's orbits, scuttling and twirling, the ribbon unfurling from her hair. 
Whenever she neared her father, he would cry, Not so close to me, Plum, or you will burn to cinders. And he would push her away from his fiery, combustible self, impelling her to run in another direction. Astonishingly, at some point, a sputtering torch was thrust into her hands. Alma did not see who had given it to her. She had never before been entrusted with fire. The torch spit sparks and sent chunks of flaming tar spinning into the air behind her as she bolted across the cosmos, the only body in the heavens who was not held to a strict elliptical path. Nobody stopped her. She was a comet. She did not know that she was not flying. Was that hard to write, or was it just that you just had to figure out how to explain this? You know, it was hard because I thought, I get so fixated, especially in this book, because I was trying to keep everything so historically accurate. I hadn't found a description of such a thing, you know? Um, And so I wasted, or maybe not wasted, but spent a huge amount of time trying to find, like, some evidence that somebody had ever done this, you know, or some firsthand account of what it looked like. And so I think I got a little trapped in the real. Um, And then when I couldn't track down the actual information and gave myself permission to invent something, um, it started to open up. And then it was just a question of making sure that I myself understood (laughs) the distance and the ratios of the planets in order to make it sort of cosmologically accurate um, and, and to try to think what would be the most delighting and magical thing that that could appear to a child's eyes about this, um, to see her father being placed at the center of the universe, which is where she always placed him anyway. Um, you know, to have this happen in the middle of the night when she's sort of not supposed to be there, this this sort of forbidden time of day for a child. And then, like Prometheus, to sort of be given fire um, and, and to run through, and to run through the whole crowd without being held to the strict orbits that everybody else was being held to, which is a bit of a, a foreshadowing of the really unusual life that she was about to lead for a woman. Um, and, and then, you know, once I kind of pieced all that together and gave myself permission to to recreate that that tiny little sentence that I had read in a very obscure book, um, then it started to come together. Where do you write? I write in my attic. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I think probably in my kitchen. <laughs> it's not very far. It's only two two sets of stairs down from my attic, but it feels like a completely different world. And um, my husband is an amazing cook, and I think the most restorative thing for me is after a day of writing to come down in the um, in the kitchen and have a glass of wine and watch him cook dinner, <laughs> and and just make idle gossip chit chat. It's pretty wonderful. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? The first person that I go to is usually my sister, um, Catherine Gilbert Murdoch, who is also a writer. Um, she writes young adult novels, but she, um, she's always been my first round. Um, she's such a great editor, and she has such a great sense of story, and she's the person who taught me how to tell stories um, when I was a little kid because she had an amazing imagination, and we used to play these really elaborate games and and make plays together and write books together. And so I think I trust her opinion more than anybody's. And how have you dealt with rejection? I don't love it, but it doesn't kill me because it doesn't shake me off my path because my path is so certain. Um, I made a commitment a really long time ago that I would be a writer for my entire life. And so the seven years that I spent collecting rejection letters, um, I remember just thinking, I'm going to totally outlast you guys <laughs> um, because I, I'm not doing this like waiting, you know, like I'm not doing this. I didn't say I'm going to do this 
and send it out. And if somebody rejects it, I'm never going to do it again. You know, I said, I'm going to do this and send it out. And then I'm just going to keep doing it until I'm dead. And people in my family live a really long time. And I'm only 22. And there's no way you're going to outlast me. <laughs> and I've kind of kept that up the whole time. But um, I just, I'll just endure longer than they will. And what is your favorite word? Wonderful. <laughs> and I use it way too much, but it's such a wonderful world word. <laughs> and it's such a wonderful world as well. Um, I use it constantly. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Elizabeth Gilbert. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.